So I've told you guys this before. That's not me. I told you guys this before, that God came from out of left field to call me to be a Jesus follower because I never saw this coming. As most of you know, I wasn't born into a believing family. I'm Jewish. I was raised Jewish. My parents are Jewish. I was bar mitzvahed many years ago. I didn't grow up in the church. And I wasn't a person who was exposed to Jesus when I was young, but then, oh, I grew up and I got over Jesus and I walked away from Jesus. I didn't do that. Essentially, I parachuted into the Jesus family from, from pretty darn far away. See, before I came to know Jesus, I knew virtually nothing about him. Virtually nothing. And I know you find that hard to believe because, of course, you, most of you people grew up knowing at least who Jesus was. And, and I knew the name. I'd heard the name before. Mostly when my grandfather would scream it out when he was upset or frustrated by something. And in those moments, he was always sure to include Jesus' middle initial when he said his H, right? Which we don't know what that stands for. But. So, so I, I heard that. I heard the name. And I had a vague notion that the little figurine that I'd seen on crosses, on the walls at friends' houses or on buildings, I had some notion that that was Jesus, but I had no clue why he was on the cross or, or that there was any, anything more I needed to know about him. I didn't need to know. It's probably not unlike maybe Islam or maybe Buddhism. You know it exists, but you never really looked into it because what, what do you care? It's not your thing. And that's how I was. I was quite content in my lack of understanding for the first three decades of my life until God came along and messed everything up. He messed up my blissful ignorance. And it happened when a coworker shared the gospel with me in a place that I certainly didn't expect it. It happened when he explained how I was born in sin, how I was born dead to God, and how I needed a Savior to rescue me, how I needed a Savior to connect me to the God of the universe. And, and once I heard this, I thought, I need to know more. And I won't go into detail today. I did that recently, just a few months ago. But suffice it to say, when I learned how God loved me and how God wants the best for me, and how God wanted to save me from eternal separation from him, and how God wanted to use me as he built his kingdom, I simply couldn't resist God anymore. I found God irresistible. Well, it wasn't long after that day that I turned from the way that I had been going and turned to Jesus. And I promised Jesus that I would devote my life to following his commands and that I would live every moment for God's glory. It was, it was absolutely the greatest news I had ever heard. And it remains to me today the greatest news I've ever heard. I have never, ever looked back. From that day on, I've had a desire to know more and more about Jesus. And thankfully, I'm able to do that. God has preserved all that I needed to know in the texts that we know of as the Bible. I'm a pastor today because I want everybody here, I want you all, everybody who's watching us, everybody who's with us, to experience the very same irresistible God that I experienced. And it's for that reason that for the next seven weeks, we'll be in a series 
that we're calling, you're not far. So, intrigued? All right, let's pray, and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Thank you for doing whatever it took so that we could all get up at the right time and have our breakfast and get the kids out of the house and come together as your ecclesia, as your community, so we can, we can celebrate by singing worship songs, by gathering together with friends, by making new friends, and by understanding you better by studying your word. So God, we thank you for this time, and we ask that you would open our hearts and minds as we see what you would have for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So one day Jesus was teaching, and he was surrounded, for the most part, by religious leaders of his community, of his day. And they were always trying to trick him, and they were always trying to discredit him. Now, now that fact is documented in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to talk about that fact a lot in this series. Anyway, on that occasion, there was a man in the audience listening to Jesus, and that man was a teacher of the law. That means he was probably a Pharisee or a scribe. Okay? They were the, sort of the hyper-religious people of Jesus' day. The scribes were the ones they also get defined as lawyer. They knew the law. They wrote the law. They copied the law. That's what they knew. And the Pharisees, remember, Pharisees come from the Hebrew parashim, which means the separated ones. So they were the ones that kind of went off on their own, and they considered themselves to be the holiest and most righteous people of all. So anyway, this teacher of the law was paying particularly close attention to what Jesus was saying. And after a bit, Jesus' words started to get to him. So he's probably there to discredit Jesus, to find Jesus saying something wrong, but he's, he's sort of buying into it. He's kind of listening, and it's starting to get to him. So in the text, Jesus had just finished debating with some of the other religious leaders from the Sadducee party about the feasibility of life after death. Now, you will remember, we've talked about this before, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death, which is why they were sad, you see. Good, you guys remember that. Good. Well, then the man asked Jesus a question. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 12. We'll be in, be in Mark today. And here's what he asked. And you've probably heard this before if you've been to church for a bit. He said to Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Which is most important? Jesus, of all the things God has commanded us to do, which thing is at the top of the list? Well, Jesus' answer surprised absolutely nobody in the crowd. Because Jesus' answer came directly from the prayer that was the centerpiece of the morning and evening Jewish prayer services and remains the centerpiece today. The prayer is called the Shema, which translates roughly to the call. Here's what it sounded like. Here's Jesus' answer in Mark 12, 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then, in what was a surprise to the crowd, Jesus kept going. And he added this. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. All right, what's he doing here? 
Why'd he give two? Thought he was only asked for one. What's happening? Well, we can tell from the Greek text that Jesus wasn't saying that this part was a second commandment or a separate commandment, but rather it was a continuation of the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's how he worded it. He said, there is no commandment. That's singular. There's no commandment greater than these. That's plural, kind of confusing. But it made sense to the man who asked. So the man who asked the question responded by saying this. Here's what the guy, so he asked Jesus, what's the greatest command? What's number one? What's at the top of the list? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so this teacher of the law says, well said, teacher. Which is pretty funny when you think about it. The man didn't know who Jesus was, clearly. He didn't know he was talking to God in the flesh and not just some other rando teacher, right? So he's going, oh, wow, that was, that was good. And I'm guessing Jesus kind of chuckled a little bit to himself. <laughs> okay, sure. And then the guy kept going. He says, this is the guy saying this to Jesus. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. Every Jew in the world believed that and should still believe that. And Jesus must have been listening to this guy going, well, gee, thanks, glad you agree with me. Well, the guy was on a roll, so he kept going. This is still the same guy. He says, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Apparently, the man was really pleased that Jesus agreed with him. So the guy keeps on going in agreement with Jesus, and he says, that is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Essentially, this teacher of the law is saying, if we're prioritizing commandments, I think you nailed it, Jesus. Good for you, young man. Those things are more important than all burnt offerings, than all sacrifices. And it was in that moment, without even realizing it, that that teacher of the law found himself in line with Jesus, on board with Jesus' teachings. All right. Despite still not knowing who Jesus was, the man was on track to see his life transformed. Then Jesus, having seen that, verse 34, having seen that the teacher of the law had answered wisely. Now we're back to Jesus. Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God, which means that the kingdom of God is not far from you. And that's what we're going to be talking about, talking about for the next few weeks. And we'll be doing it by looking at a true story. A story that probably should have died in Nero's Rome. But by God's grace, it didn't. It's the story of Jesus narrated by Simon Peter, one of Jesus' most famous apostles. We know him simply as Peter. Now, it's important to know that Peter's story is a story that does not make Peter look very good. But that didn't stop Peter from telling and he told it over and over again for 30 years. Peter knew what he knew because he followed Jesus for Jesus' entire earthly ministry. 
And then after following Jesus for his earthly ministry, Peter spent the next three decades traveling around telling his story, notwithstanding all the embarrassing things that he had done along the way. And the reason he did that, and the reason he documented even his greatest failures is because Peter's story is just a part of the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus of Nazareth. It was Peter's intent to make Jesus known everywhere he could, but it cost him. While Peter was traveling around the Mediterranean region telling the story, he was always having to dodge the authorities. People were always coming after him. But he didn't do a great job of dodging them all the time. He was arrested a lot. He was beaten over and over, all because of his faith in Jesus. Yet whenever Peter would enter a village or a town, he would be invited into the homes of believers, of Jesus followers, also the homes of curious people, also the homes of God-fearing Gentiles who all wanted to know what was he like. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus teach? But ultimately, Peter was imprisoned in, in Nero's Rome. And as Peter sat in his cell awaiting the trial, that would likely end his life, he decided to tell his story one more time for posterity. So Peter had one of his traveling companions, a man named John Mark. He had him write it all down. We know John Mark as the gospel writer Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Peter told his story to Mark because Peter was uneducated. Like the majority of people around him, and this is really something that we have a hard time understanding as modern people, that in those days, you had to be high up to be educated. You had to have some wealth or some position in the society or some sort of connection. Most people didn't. So because Peter was an uneducated like the majority of people around him, Peter, remember, was a fisherman. Peter could neither read nor write. Yet he ultimately became a fisher of men. And in the first century, he became a big fish as the leader of the community of Jesus' followers. And no, I'm not just going to make fish analogies for the rest of the morning. I'll stop right here. I may come back to it, though. Now, because of Peter's prominence, Peter drew the attention of the Roman emperor Nero. And Nero set his sights on Peter, and eventually Nero would capture Peter and lock him up. So Mark had been traveling with Peter for about a year or two. So he'd heard Peter tell his stories about Jesus over and over. And when they were together in Rome, Peter told Mark the whole story one more time. And that's what we read in Mark's gospel. So that's what Mark's gospel is. It's Peter's story of his time with Jesus. Now I want to take a quick detour for some interesting stuff about Mark, because you might not know this. First off, you know, Mark was not one of Jesus' apostles. He was not one of the twelve. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry, Mark was only a teenager. Now, it is pretty likely, scholars kind of concur on this, that he probably was in a crowd or two listening to Jesus teach. He'd seen him before, but he certainly wasn't one of the twelve. Now, before he wrote his gospel, the gospel of Mark, Mark had been the traveling companion and assistant to Paul and Barnabas, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, when they were on their missionary journey. So undoubtedly, during that time, he picked up a lot of information about Jesus as well. But what Mark did was he gathered his 
detailed and extensive knowledge about Jesus a little bit later on, directly from Peter, who was one of the twelve and who was an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly ministry and also an eyewitness of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. So Mark served as Peter's interpreter and scribe and wrote his gospel directly from Peter's observations and memories. Now, as a result of who Peter was and the way in which he recalled his time with Jesus, Mark's gospel is a bit hectic to read. Have any of you tried to read the gospel of Mark? It's, it's a tough one because it's actually pretty random. It's not orderly at all. It's not chronological at all. When, when you're reading Luke's gospel, Luke was a, a physician. He was a scientist. He had a techno, technical mind. His, his gospel just kind of flowed along in a, in a linear fashion. Mark's gospel is very hectic. It goes in and back and up and down. It's always very hard to follow. In some parts, it's vague. In other parts, the detail is almost exhausting. Because Peter wasn't a scholar. Peter was a fisherman. You known fishermen before? Some of you fishermen out there? Fishermen can tell a story, can't they? You should see what I caught. The fish was this big, right? Fishermen can tell a story. So he didn't tell a story like a scholar would tell a story. He told a story like a regular person would tell a story. He told a story like a person who, who had encountered this amazing person who changed his life. He told a story like that person would tell a story. And as a result, Mark's gospel contains all sorts of stuff. Parables and conversations, stories and recounted teachings, and it's all shuffled together. It's all jumbled together. And so when you read Mark's gospel, you can kind of feel, like when you read it, if you're really into it, you can kind of feel how Peter was essentially downloading all of his information about his experiences to Mark in no particular order. He was just blah, 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 blah. Paper was expensive. Writing implements were expensive. You couldn't crumple up the paper, start again, try to organize it. It wasn't happening. Mark's just feverishly writing everything down, so he's preserving Peter's stories of his eyewitness encounter with the most consequential person in the world, the most consequential person that the world would ever see. So Peter's account began with Peter's ultimate conclusion regarding Jesus. So he starts with the end. Peter probably began with the conclusion because he didn't know if he was going to see the end of the day or the next day. He didn't know how much longer he had left, so he wanted to get the whole story out, but he wanted to make sure the big points came out first so we don't miss the big points. So Peter recounted to Mark actual things that actually happened to him and around him. Peter recounted to Mark things that he personally experienced or personally saw with his own eyes. Peter recounted everything to Mark without fear, which was pretty remarkable for Peter, considering he'd showed a bit of fear in his life earlier on at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, if you remember. Remember, Peter is the one who denied Jesus. We'll talk about that later. But Peter knew well that God was not only near to him, but also near to all of Jesus' people. But little did Peter know, and this is interesting, Little did Peter know that 2,000 years later, after he had written this or dictated this gospel, little did he know that we would be among the 2.6 billion followers of Jesus worldwide. By the way, that number, 2.6 billion Christians in the world, is eight and a half times larger than the entire world population in Peter's day. Little did he know 
that billions of people would read the account of his time and life with Jesus of Nazareth. Can you imagine? You write something down like that, and it's being studied in, in the thousand years and two thousand years by billions of people? That's amazing. Well, here's how Peter began with the end. Here's how he did. So we're going to go to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Peter started by summing up the conclusion that he had reached about the enigmatic, itinerant rabbi with whom he'd spent three years of his life. So that's what he starts with. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. Evangelion is the translation, good news. We translate the word as gospel, but hold on to that thought. Because what happens after Mark 1 is for the next few chapters, Peter starts talking about some of his experiences that led him to this conclusion. After having lived together with Jesus, having learned at his feet, heard him preach and teach, watched him minister to the broken, watched him heal the afflicted, watched him arrested, beaten, crucified and buried. But then having witnessed Jesus rise again, Peter knew. Peter had absolutely no doubt about who Jesus was. Peter had been there. He witnessed firsthand how Jesus bore our sins. And though Peter certainly did not understand what he was seeing at first, everything would become clear to him later on, which is why he spent the rest of his life proclaiming it to anyone and everyone who would listen. Now, even though Peter wouldn't have chosen for his life to end the way that he thought it was about to end, there was no way that he was going to give up hope, having seen so much and experienced so much and come so far. So back to Peter's story. Peter began telling Mark the story of Jesus, starting with the end, starting with the main idea. Now, this main idea is easy for us church people, church folk. It's easy for us to miss. And quite frankly, it's for good reason. When we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we typically read them with a purpose in mind, with a very specific purpose in mind. We typically read the Bible devotionally. You know, you do your Bible devotions in the morning if you do. That's what we're doing, reading it devotionally. We don't typically read the Bible and try to follow all the storylines unless we're reading an Old Testament story. The Old Testament gives us that kind of history where you can sort of follow the storyline because it kind of flows along that way. New Testament doesn't really do that. It's a, it's a bit confusing. Paul goes on all these missionary journeys. You never know where he is, when. Act, the book of Acts kind of puts that all together. It's all over the place. We don't try to follow the storylines. Typically, when we read the Bible, we're looking for application, right? That's what we do when we read the Bible. We're trying to apply it to our lives. We read the Bible looking for inspiration. We're trying to be inspired by some of the words of God. We read the Bible looking for hope in the midst of a challenge. We read the Bible in order to figure out, discern God's discretion, God's direction in our lives with regard to a decision that we have to make or a thing we want to do. And that's why we love parables. We followers of Jesus love parables. We love the stories with a moral lesson. We love the stories with a practical purpose. We, we love the parable of the prodigal son because we love how God, represented by the father in the story, receives the younger son and forgives the younger son for doing all the bad stuff. And we take some comfort in knowing that we just need to not be like the older brother. Uh, we take that out of the story. Okay, well, just don't be like that older brother. 
We like the story of the woman caught in adultery because Jesus forgave her and he just told her, stop sinning. Has anybody condemned you? Neither do I. Now just cut it out. We like that. We like how Jesus forbid the religious people from condemning her at all. We really like that story. We really love when the religious people aren't allowed to condemn. We like the story of the Good Samaritan. A person shows mercy to somebody who certainly wouldn't have shown them mercy back. It's all a great example for us. But those parables are simply illustrations of the bigger picture. Illustrations that point to the big idea of Jesus' message. Because the narratives and the stories in the New Testament all fit together to form an overarching narrative, a big picture of what it means to follow Jesus. So at the very beginning of the story that he's relating to Mark, Peter determined what he wanted us to know he want, what he wanted us to know about how all the pieces fit together from the start. So it's kind of like this. Think of it this way. It's as if in Mark's gospel, Peter is holding up the lid to the puzzle box, and he's saying, when I'm finished with my account, it's going to look like this. This is the context for everything that Jesus taught. It's interesting. For much of my Christian life, if somebody asks me, what's the big idea about Christianity? What's the overarching theme of following Jesus? I would have answered immediately. And I would have said, I think most Christians would say, the big idea of Christianity, the theme of following Jesus, is that Jesus died for my sin, and if I put my faith in him, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, and in the meantime, I need to behave myself. I would have told you that's what it is. But if we said to Peter, Peter, we don't need you to tell us what the big idea is. We know the big idea. Come on, Peter, Jesus died for our sin. We put our faith in him. When we die, we go to heaven. Got it. Peter would have looked at us like we were nuts. That's all you got out of what I said? Now, he would have said that not, and don't miss what I'm about to say, not because it isn't true. It absolutely is true. That gospel message, we're sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus is that Savior, and he saves us when we put our faith in him. That is absolutely central to the way that God calls a people to himself and the way that God shows his love for us, his image bearers. But it is not the whole thing. It's not the overarching big idea. So right up front, Peter let us know. Here is the ultimate point. Here is the big picture. Peter would have said, if you don't hear anything else I say, if I'm executed before they finish this story, please understand that this is ultimately what the arrival of Jesus was all about. And while, yes, you're right, your relationship with God will guarantee you an eternity with God, there's also something for you in the here and now. You can live every single day of your life with the assurance that God is near. So here's what Peter told Mark, jumping back to an event 30-plus years prior. So this is what I'm talking about. We're just in Mark 1. We just started with this statement in the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, and the next thing he does is jumps back 30 years in time. That's what I'm talking about, the timeline. He's just all the way back. Now, to help us follow this story that we're about to read, We'll start off here. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee. So here's a map of the Holy Land. All right? You don't need to be able to read the little stuff. I just want you to see the big stuff. Now, the Sea of Galilee is, at the, is that sort of larger blue circle at the, toward the top. See the big word Galilee on the left? That's the Sea of Galilee next to it. Under that, the Jordan River, the squiggly blue line. 
And then kind of a long blue pond, it looks like. That's the Dead Sea. So that's how that goes. North is at the top, south is at the bottom. So Peter then takes us to Jesus right after John the Baptist had been beheaded. So John the Baptist was beheaded somewhere down near the Dead Sea. Okay, so down at the bo- toward the bottom of the screen. Then he was arrested and put into one of Herod's prisons in the desert, also located in that area. And after John the Baptist was beheaded, Jesus began to make his way from there, down at the bottom, down near the Dead Sea, all the way up to the top of the map to the region above the Sea of Galilee, north of the Sea of Galilee. And Peter tells us that during that very long walk all the way up, all along the way, Jesus was proclaiming, here it is again, the Evangelion, the good news of God. Which, when we hear it, we're conditioned to go, right, Jesus came to earth, died for our sins, put our faith in him, we get to go to heaven when we die. But you can see, I hope, that that wasn't Jesus' message. How can you see that? How can we know that? Well, it's fairly straightforward. Jesus hadn't died yet. They didn't know that was going to happen. He had not died yet. And in fact, as we're going to see in this series, Peter made it clear the death and resurrection of Jesus was the thing that punctuated what Jesus taught throughout his earthly ministry. That was the thing that sold him. Remember, after Jesus was crucified, the disciples scattered. They were like, wow, we thought this guy was the Messiah. Now he's dead. We are out of here. We're going to get killed. That's the thing that punctuated what Jesus was teaching. The things that Jesus taught throughout his earthly ministry we're also aimed at impacting the way that we live our lives on planet Earth because God is near to us. This is the message that Peter heard Jesus preach over and over and over. Everywhere Jesus went, from the Jordan River Valley all the way up to the Galilee and eventually to the city of Capernaum, the message that Jesus taught was, Mark 1:15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Other translations say the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. In other words, this is what the world has been waiting for. This is what everything in the Jewish religion and actually some pagan religions as well have pointed to. This is that moment. Everything before was preparation. Everything before was foreshadowing. The time has now come. The kingdom of God is near. God's kingship, which means God's rule, God's kingdom is near because the king is here. King Jesus is here. And wherever the king goes, the kingdom travels with him. Now, when Peter first heard Jesus say this, Peter had absolutely no clue what Jesus was talking about. He must have been thinking, what do you mean the kingdom of God is here? And think about the time they were living in. He probably thought, actually, it's the kingdom of Rome that's here. Actually, Israel hasn't been an independent nation for centuries. What do you even mean the kingdom of God is here? I thought the kingdom of God was the kingdom of Israel. But here we can see that Jesus was not talking about a future event something to hope for, something to look for. Jesus was saying, the future is now. I am the fulfillment. This is the fulfillment. We would later learn that the kingdom of God was a kingdom of the heart. It was a kingdom of conscience informed by the teachings of a king who had come to turn everything on its head. The world had neither seen anything like that before 
or heard anything like that before. In fact, later on, Peter is going to tell us that time after time we sat and listened to Jesus' teaching and we think, come on, Jesus, you can't mean that. And when they'd move away from the crowd, they'd say, Jesus, could you explain that to us? We don't get it. I don't think we heard that right. Like throughout their time with Jesus, the 12 had such a tough time getting what he was talking about. Because like us, they'd grown up with an understanding of what authority was and what a kingdom was. But the notion of the kingdom of God was a very different kind of kingdom. And Jesus was a very different kind of king. They struggled to understand that the kingdom of God was a kingdom that is now, not in the future, because the king has arrived. The kingdom of God was a kingdom, as Peter told that teacher of the law at the beginning of today's message, where loving God and loving others was the ultimate priority. And Peter would say, this is the picture into which all the pieces fit, including the final piece, the death of the king. The death of the king who came to give his life for his subjects instead of requiring his subjects to give their life for him as a normal king would. The arrival of Jesus was the beginning of a new era. The old was passing away. Something new and something better had come. And it would culminate in a new covenant foretold in the Hebrew Bible. We'll talk about that at the end of the series. Interestingly, one of the surprising things for Peter and the disciples is that when Jesus introduced the new covenant, he introduced it as a new covenant between God and the whole world, not only between God and the Jews. During his lifetime, Peter saw Jesus continue to open up this new kingdom and invite all kinds of people to participate in it. But there was a catch The good news of the arrival of the king who came to establish a new kingdom, a new kind of kingdom, required something. Jesus said the time has come, and then he boiled down his whole message into two imperatives, two things you have to do, two thou shalts. We're going to take a look continuing on in Mark 1.15. The time has come. The kingdom of God is drawn near. Repent. Now, when we see the word repent... We might envision a prophet in the Old Testament shouting at a crowd, summoning down bolts of lightning, and summoning thunder upon the unfaithful. When we see the word repent, we think of turning away from sin, and it does mean that, and it can mean that, but that's not all it means. That's not what Jesus was saying right here. When Jesus is saying right here, repent, remember, repent means to turn away from. So he was asking his followers to turn, to turn from the way they previously looked at the world, their previous worldview. And he was telling them to turn in a different direction. When we did our little political conversation a few months ago, that's what we were talking about, turning our brains to go, no, 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 don't look at the world the way the world wants us to think of it. We look at it differently. We believe in a different kingdom. We belong to a different kingdom. We're above the fray, the fight here. It's a different direction. Jesus was telling his people, Jesus is telling us to turn in the direction of the new kingdom with a new kind of king that was establishing himself on earth. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been invited to participate in this new kingdom as well. But until you change the way that you look at the world, and until you embrace Jesus' new kingdom, you're going to miss it. You're not going to understand. It's not going to work for you. As followers of Jesus, it is imperative that we embrace this new way of viewing the world, this new way of viewing ourselves, and this new way of understanding and experiencing the presence of God because the kingdom of God is near 
and we are not far. Jesus continued, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now the Greek word Peter used here is the word pistuo, to believe. By the use of this word, we understand that Jesus wanted us to not only believe in our heads that God's kingdom has come, but also to entrust ourselves to it, to give ourselves to it, to fully surrender and submit to it, to this new Jesus-centered worldview. And along with it, to the new rules of this new kingdom led by the new king, King Jesus. What this change of direction and what this change of trust entailed was the focus of the rest of Peter's account of his time with Jesus. And the thing that would become abundantly clear just might be the best news for you, depending on where you are in your life right now. The thing that became abundantly clear about this new kingdom was that it was for everybody, everybody who was called to participate in it. And let me take a beat here and say, if right now you're finding yourself a little confused or even a little bit overwhelmed by all this stuff, you are tracking along just fine. You're exactly where you need to be. Because as I said up front, Peter's telling of his story to Mark was confusing. It was all over the place. And Mark was doing his level best to get it all down and put it in some sort of order. And we're going to do that as well. We're going to put it in order so we can understand it. So in that vein, it looks like Mark must have next said something to Peter like this. And we're guessing here, but you're going to see why in a second. At this moment, right after this Mark 1.15, Mark must have said something to Peter like, listen, Pete, that's what he called him, Pete. Let me stop you right there. Could you just take a minute and go back and explain how you became one of Jesus' disciples? How, how did it all start? And here I'm picturing Peter getting a little bit quiet for a second and going, taking a deep breath, letting it out slowly, and kind of stroking his Old Testament beard, his New Testament beard, before he said this. This is literally what the next verse is. Look at this. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. He goes back to the beginning of the story, like right there. He's telling a story. He stops right in the middle, and he goes all the way back telling them how he came. As he's walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Now, by the way, you can read the same story in Luke's gospel, but you'll see there are certain details that Mark left out. For example, we know that before Peter dropped everything to follow Jesus, he actually took Jesus fishing. We, learned, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. We, we learned about that in Luke, but Mark didn't include it for whatever reason. Peter decided he's not going to talk about it right here. Instead, Peter continues with his story. When they had gone a little farther, they saw James. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. By the time that Peter was relating this story to Mark, it had been about 20 years since James was executed by King Herod Agrippa. And given the fact that Herod Agrippa, who's King Herod the Great's son, was, was the one who had Peter arrested, he's the one who was holding Peter in jail at that time, Peter just assumed he's going to die the same way James died. But his enthusiasm was not dampened because the king had come and ushered in a new kingdom. And even though Peter didn't quite understand it, he embraced it and he stayed focused on it for all the decades that followed. Many years after losing James and, and many of his other friends, Peter was still confident 
in what he heard and saw. We keep going in verse 19. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And we never learn whatever else happened to us about Zebedee. It would be interesting. It's a good question to ask God when you get to heaven. And Peter could have added, and Mark, I just want you to know we had no clue what we were getting ourselves into. But Mark, how could we say no? The king had come. And with that, Peter goes right back to telling the story that he had been telling Mark before this little detour. He goes back to verse 21. They went to Capernaum. Like that. Like, think about that. He's telling this story. He stops in the middle. He gives this big history. And then he goes right back into it. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. All right. So this is a little bit important to look at. So I'm going to put the map back up. So they're down there and sort of toward the Dead Sea down there in the south. And Capernaum is way up at the top of that blue line at the top of the Jordan River. And so that's where they have to go to. So they walked from down low, down south, all the way up to this major city near the Sea of Galilee at the top. And in Capernaum, just as they had done their whole lives, they went to synagogue. But this time they went to synagogue and they brought Jesus with them. Most scholars believe that actually it was, it was probably Peter's home synagogue. Because their actual hometown was probably too small to have its own synagogue, and Capernaum was the biggest place close by that would have one. So they show up at this Capernaum synagogue, and they have this new rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. And for whatever reason, the leaders of the synagogue are excited, and they ask the new rabbi if he wants to speak. Well, Peter told Mark, verse 22, the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one who had authority not as the teachers of the law. In other words, he didn't sound like he was just regurgitating information that he'd learned in grad school. He sounded like he was there. He had authority. And the people were amazed. And they were thinking, we've been hearing this teaching our entire lives. When Jesus stood up to teach it, it's like we were hearing it for the very first time. It was so extraordinary that, verse 28, news about Jesus spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And so it began. Now, as we wrap up today, here's what Peter, who spent time with Jesus and then spent 30 years living it out, would have us know. Peter would have us know that the arrival of Jesus was good news. So if your version of Christianity is not good news, you have the wrong version of Christianity. You don't have Peter's version of Christianity. If the version of Christianity that you grew up in or that you were familiar with is not such good news, I believe that Peter would say this to you. If it was easy to leave it, if it was that easy to walk away from, if it was that easy to stop believing, Peter would say, would you just give me the opportunity to let you know what my version looked like? Because it's not something I just heard about. It's not something I just read about. It's something I experienced. And the reason Peter would say that it's such good news is because God came near, which means that you are never far. God came near to save us from our sin and to establish something in the here and now. And whether you recognize it or not, whether you realize it or not, and whether you feel it or not, you are not far from God. And we are just getting started. And I think Peter would add this. If you've had doubts... Let me tell you, I had doubts too. If you walked away, I totally get that, Peter would say. I walked away too. 
But then I experienced the mercy of the king. But we'll talk about that later on. For now, it's enough to know that the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And the question for us right now is this. Will we turn in that direction? Will we be willing to turn in that direction and repent and believe the good news? Because if we will, if we are, everything will change. And we'll pick up the storyline there next week in part two of You're Not Far. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for guiding us through this confusing gospel of Mark. And thank you for helping us to better understand you, to understand what you've called us into, to understand how much you love us, and to understand just how irresistible you are. God, we're looking forward to seeing how you'll continue to use us in this world as we lead other people to you. We love you, God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.